I actually got, uh, my wife and I got a smartphone last weekend. We went into the 21st century there, and, and you know what? All week long, we're just complaining about this phone. <laughs> it's just like, this phone has, doesn't have enough room to store our pictures, and this phone, like, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe we just um, have missed our window of understanding this technology because we waited so long, but, but this phone has created many problems in our lives, and hopefully we'll adjust, but it's been tough. So, well, we all know first world problems, and we all are used to uh, complaining about first world problems, posting on Facebook about first world problems, talking to one another about our first world problems, right? And really, they're, they're not real problems. They're not things that are really that big of a deal for us. Maybe inconveniences that we've uh, not grown accustomed to, and so when they happen, we get frustrated. But it's, they're really not a big deal. But every one of us does have real problems that we could talk about right now. I could, I could call out right now and say, does anyone have a, a, a significant problem that you're facing? And everyone in this room could say an answer to that. Now, now probably not everyone would be so free to do that because real problems are, are personal to us. They, they simmer in our hearts and they affect our emotions and they affect our attitudes and they affect the way that we live. But we all come this morning needing help in some real ways. Uh, Ron, we just prayed for you and for your health. That's a real problem that you really need help for. And others, if you have significant health issues. So some of us are, are facing unemployment and are looking for a job, and we can't seem to find a job. And, and some of us have a job, and, and, and so we're working, but it just doesn't seem like it's fitting very well. And we're not getting the income we need to just have basic needs met that, that will help us to, to live and provide for our families and be able to give and, and serve, and, and so we, we have real issues there. We have real problems that we need help for. We have problems with broken relationships where, where parents and children and husbands and wives and friends with other friends and, and family members are, are broken. They, they can't speak to each other. They are angry at each other. There's, there's no forgiveness. There's been mistakes. There's been hurt. And, and now we don't know what to do to make it better. And so we have real problems there. We have parenting struggles where, where our, our children are, are not listening and they're not growing and they're, and they're not obeying. And then as parents, we are angry and we're exasperated and we're frustrated. We just don't know what to do. And it seems like there's nothing we can do. We need help with that. So some of us have feelings of depression that, that just hang with us all the time. We're just sad, just just always feel down for, for no specific reason except that, that we struggle to, to feel joy inside about our lives. So some of us lack direction. We, we know we need to move. We know we need to do something. We know we need to advance towards what God wants us to do, but we, we don't know what to do. We don't know when to do. We don't know how to do. We lack wisdom and we need direction, but we don't have it. We, we all have these these needs this morning that we, we all bring into this building, we bring into our worship, we, we come together as a needy people. And all of us have uh, some, maybe something on that list, something that's not on that list that I can name, it, uh, probably a combination of those things that, that is just with us this morning. Real needs, real problems, real issues. And when we come to worship, what do we do with those needs and issues and problems? Some, some have said that when you come in, just, just drop them at the door, essentially, so that you can focus on worshiping God. But if we do that, then we also leave, and, 
and we don't really tend to pick those things back up with, we pick them back up, we forget what God has spoken to us. We don't connect him to our lives. And so the areas where we need help, we're not receiving help because we're trying to ignore those things instead of bringing them to him. But Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so God invites us there, says, I'm a helper. God, God says, I want to help you in your struggles. I want to meet your needs. I want to come into your life and minister to you with what is going on. I don't want you to, to leave those things and not bring them to me and try to ignore them. I want you to bring them to me and find refuge in me and find strength in me and, and find help in me. And so this morning, we're, we're going to pray for God to illumine his word for us, for us to understand his word. But before we do that, I want to give you a moment this morning to bring your needs and your problems and your troubles to God. He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so what I want to encourage you to do, what God invites you to do is to express your need to him. To say, I need this, God. This is what's going on in my life. Please help me. Pray that prayer. Make it specific to your life. And then join me as I pray for God to illumine his word for us. And we'll allow God to connect the dots between those things. Let's pray. God, we take refuge in you this morning. You are our refuge and strength. We believe, as we said earlier, that you are here. In your presence, we are made whole. And so, God, we cast ourselves and our lives on you in faith that you are a very present help right now. Lord, now we want to open up your word, and we want to ask you that you would speak to us. God, God we know that, that you wrote this book. You, you caused men by your spirit to write down your very words, and you preserved them for us. And, and we can open up this book now and, and see what you've said, and your spirit now helps us to understand. So we pray for that help. We pray, Lord, that what you have spoken in your word, that that today by your spirit you would speak to us here in this place at Redeemer Church. God, would you speak life? Would you speak healing? Would you speak help? Would you speak grace? 
and power. We are uh, completely needy people. And, and we are as needy in our lives as we are right now to, to understand and hear and embrace and apply your word. And so we pray that by your grace you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd open up to John 4, John chapter 4, we are going to get back into our series called He Is. And we got a banner over here to my right. It's a He Is is a study in the Gospel of John of the person of Jesus. And every week in this series, we are asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is God revealing Jesus to be in this text? And Daniel Coleman, he created that banner, and it shows some of the things that Jesus declares in John that he is. He is the way. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. And, and throughout the book, we are, we are discovering more and more of who Jesus is. And John writes this book so that we may know who Jesus is and may believe in his name and may have eternal life. And so today, we want to press into who Jesus is, and we are going to pick up in John chapter 4, verse 43. We're going to go through this in four sections, and and just to get a head start so we kind of remember where we were, let's go back a little bit to um, verse 39. Verse 39, we'll just get a little bit of a head start into this text so we understand where we've been. Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria, and and she told the town about about him. The, The town is now all coming out, and Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, the fields are white for harvest. And so... Chapter 4, verse 39, and we're going to read through 54. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee... He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So what we're going to do first is just walk through this text section by section and just understand what it says, glean some principles along the way, and then we will, we will let the text unfold itself so that we see what is the main idea that Jesus is getting at today. And so the first section we're going to look at is verses 43 
through 46a. The first half of verse 46 is where we'll stop with this first section. But 43 through 46, and the, and the section is about a dishonored prophet. A dishonored prophet. Okay, so let's look back at verse 43, how it starts. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. So, so right there, let's, let's remember where Jesus is departing from. He's in a village in Samaria. He just spoke to the woman at the well. Like we just read, the whole town is coming to him. The fields are ripe for the harvest. Jesus and his disciples are teaching the Samaritans about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And, and their testimony at the end of, of the passage is, we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is the Savior of the world. Things are going great in Samaria, and they are honoring Christ, and they, they are saying, this is the Savior of the world, and he's come to save us from our sins, and we're going to put our trust in him as God's Messiah. So why does Jesus leave Samaria and go to Galilee? Well, verse 44 tells us, it begins with this word, for. Why is Jesus leaving Samaria? For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So, so Jesus is leaving a fruitful place where the people are honoring him to go to a place where he knows they will not honor him. He's intentionally leaving a place where people are extolling him as the savior of the world for, for his hometown where he knows that they will not do that. For a place that he knows he will not be valued, not be honored. And, and we'll ask why in, in a little bit, but let's just keep looking at what John does here. How how do the Galileans dishonor him? Look at verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. How do they dishonor him? On the surface, this seems like a positive thing. Jesus comes to Galilee, and it says they welcomed him. That seems like a good thing, right? But why did they welcome Jesus? They'd seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too were at the feast Turn back a few pages to chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is what John is referring to here, that they were at the feast and they saw what he did. Verse 23 of chapter 2, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And we looked at these verses very intently and saw that, that they had a kind of faith in Jesus. They, they saw the signs he was doing and, and they believed, but the heart of their faith was that they wanted Jesus as a miracle worker, as, as someone who could do things for them and, and not because they had genuine faith in him. And Jesus could discern their hearts and see that their hearts were still committed to themselves and their hearts were still committed to their idols and that they weren't believing in him for his sake, they're believing in him for what he could do for them. And so here, by, by welcoming Jesus on the basis of the signs he did, they, they're not honoring him, they're dishonoring him. They're saying, great, Jesus is here in Galilee now, he can do more of that stuff for us. And, and so, yeah, come on, C come Jesus and do miracles for us. We have problems, come fix them for us. That, that's what they're doing. And they're dishonoring Jesus through that. And Jesus knows that, and he's going to them anyways. At this point, we just need to observe something that God is teaching through the whole Gospel of John. And we see it in this text. And, and what he's teaching is that there are really two kinds of faith. There, there are really two kinds of belief 
in Jesus. Like we said earlier, John wrote this gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and have what? Have eternal life. Right? So belief is what John is getting at. Belief is what John is aiming at. He's saying, I want you to believe in Jesus because I want you to have eternal life in his name. And so the whole book is about who Jesus is and, and calling us to faith in him. But he does not want anyone to be mistaken that they believe in Jesus if they don't, that they have true faith when they don't. And so he continues to contrast true belief with false belief. So when you, see the, when you see the word believe in John, you can't just automatically say, oh yeah, they're, they're Christians, yeah, they were saved, because John, John wants us to look at the context whenever he uses these words and say, is there, is there belief genuine here, or is it ingenuine? There's two kinds of faith, and we see it when we look at the Samaritans and the Galileans. When, when, when we look at Jesus in Samaria being honored and look at the Galileans now welcoming him, one faith honors Christ as the Savior of the world. And the other faith dishonors Christ as nothing more than a wonder worker. One faith is based on hearing his word. Jesus wasn't even doing signs in Samaria. He was just teaching them. He was just speaking to them. And they believed that he was the savior of the world. One one is based on hearing his word. The other is based on receiving his blessings. It's, It's a faith that comes after signs and wonders and that wants more of them. One faith worships Christ and desires Christ, and wants Christ, the other faith uses Christ to worship other things. The other faith sees Christ as a means to a different end. One faith leads to salvation and eternal life, and the other faith leads to condemnation. Two kinds of faith. And so this morning, we need to ask ourselves, we who claim to believe in Jesus, John is asking us to do this, what kind of faith do we have? What do you believe about Jesus? That's, that's the first question you need to ask. Do, do, you, do you know who he is? As, as he is revealed in the Gospel of John, as he's revealed in God's word, do you believe in who Jesus says he is? Do you believe that he is the Son of God, eternal, one with the Father, born of a virgin, became one of us, fully God and fully man, lived a righteous life in our place, died a substitutionary death for sinners, rose from the dead, three days later, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, will come again as the judge of the earth, to him be glory and praise. Do you believe that's who Jesus is? That's, that's one level of belief, but John gets deeper than that. He doesn't just ask, what do you believe about Jesus? He says, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe in Jesus? What are, what are you wanting from him? What are you seeking from Jesus? What are you valuing in your life and in your heart? Is it him? Or is Jesus a means to a different end in your life? Is Jesus something that, that, or someone that will help you get what you want? Someone that will help you get blessings? Someone that will help you get health? Someone that will help you with whatever it is that you want? Someone that will help you with your family? Is that why you want Jesus? Or do you want Jesus because you want Jesus himself? Don't dishonor Christ by believing in him so that you can use him. Honor him by believing in him so that you can have him. That honors Christ. The faith that saves, the faith that honors Christ, the faith, the faith that worships Christ is the faith that hears his word, believes it, and wants him. And so Jesus is going to a place where that's not true. 
He's going to a place where, where they want to use him. He's going to a place where they just see him as a wonder worker. And so we ask, why? Why, why is Jesus doing that? Why, why would he go to a place where he's going to be dishonored? And I think verse 46 begins to answer the question for us. He says, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And so John wants us to remember not just the signs Jesus did in Jerusalem and how the people responded to those signs, but he wants us to remember the sign Jesus did at the wedding with his disciples. And, and, and there was a very different response to that sign. Remember, at the wedding in Cana, they ran out of wine. His mother comes to him. Jesus hadn't done any, any sort of public miracle at this point. His, his mother says they need more wine. And Jesus speaks instructions, and then really, without anyone even seeing how it happened or, or what happened or when it happened, they, they bring the buckets of water to the master of the feast, and it's the best wine you could possibly have. And, and what does it say the disciples did when this miracle happened? It, it says, he manifested his glory, and they believed in him, and they followed him. And so there, there is a sign that Jesus did earlier in the same city that he's in now where he showed someone his glory. And, and through that revelation of his glory, he birthed faith in their hearts, a faith that wanted him, a faith that, that wanted to follow him, a faith that was going to go all in with Jesus for Jesus' sake because they saw his glory. And so what we see here is that, yes, Jesus is going to a place where he's been dishonored, but, but this, this should build anticipation in us right now that Jesus is going to go to a place where he's dishonored because he's going to work so that people do honor him. J Jesus is worthy of honor. Jesus is worthy of worship. He's worthy of praise. And in this text, he is, he is going to go and reveal his glory to someone so that they find their joy in honoring him. And, and this this begins to build anticipation for that. And so um, what we need to do now is then look at this story in light of this beginning. The, you know, the, usually the, the gospels just say, and Jesus went to this town and then tells us the story, right? But here we, we've got several verses, a whole paragraph of information on where Jesus is. And, and it tells us that this is all very important for understanding what comes next. It's very important to, to read this whole text through the lens that Jesus is a dishonored prophet who is worthy of honor, and he will reveal his glory to get honor. And so let's go from there then to the next section, verses 46 and 47, on a desperate father. So, so we saw a despised prophet, and now we see a desperate father. Look down at verse 46. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So let's allow this man's situation to sink into our minds and our hearts for a moment. The man's son is dying. His son is literally at the point of death, is what the text says. And, and the father's all out of options. He's, he's seemingly tried everything. It says he's an official. It, it, it probably means that he was uh, somehow connected to King Herod, who, who's, who lived in Galilee, and, and that he was a royal official. And that's probably had some affluence, probably had some power, some prestige. And, 
And he had options when his son got sick. Surely he had options for, for his son to get better. And, and he's exhausted those options. And his son is still dying. And he, he has nowhere else to turn. And, that, and then someone comes and, and they say, oh man, I was just in Jerusalem at this feast. And there was this man named Jesus who was just healing everybody that came to him. It was amazing. And, and he hears this and, and he thinks, maybe this guy can heal my son. And so at the point of death, his son could die any moment. He has to decide, am I going to make the trek to Cana from where I am in Capernaum? It's about a 15-mile journey, which on foot is several days of walking. So am I going to leave my son here and go to this man, Jesus, who I've heard might be able to heal my son? And the answer is, I have to. <laughs> I have to. There's no other options. If I want my son to live, I have to, I have to try. And so, and so the father seeks Jesus out, and he finds Jesus, and he asks him to return with him and heal his dying son. Before we look at Jesus' response, we need to realize something important that's, that's happening in these verses, and that's the potential of a crisis to bring someone to Jesus. The potential of a crisis to bring someone to Jesus. This man was, like we said, an official, probably very affluent, probably had considerable power, probably didn't have, you know, you know he had first world problems, right? He had first world problems, but, but here a real problem enters his life, a real situation. And, and would, would he have made this trek to Cana to see Jesus under any other circumstance? No way. They never would have even given thought to Jesus. He was good. He was good, but here he is, desperate for help, seeking Jesus' help, directly asking him to come with him because someone told him at some point, I've heard of a man named Jesus who can do these things. So, someone had told him at some point about Jesus. Someone reached out to this man during, during this crisis and said, I know someone who can help. His name is Jesus. Go to him. You, you need to go to him. There may be people in your life who want nothing to do with Jesus. They just want nothing to do with him. And, and frankly, they don't see any need for him. They're happy. They're good. They're living their lives. They don't really believe what you say, and, 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 they're, and they're just shut off from Christ. But be ready. Be ready to reach out to them when a time of crisis comes and to tell them to go to Jesus. Be, be ready to say, I know someone who can help you. I know someone who is powerful. I know someone who is compassionate. I know someone who is eager to help you. His name is Jesus. God, God graciously uses moments of need in people's lives to draw them to himself. Maybe he did that in your life, that you were facing some sort of crisis situation that God powerfully used to draw you to him. I was speaking to Lauren Haynes this morning, and she posted on Facebook yesterday about uh, an accident she had 10 years ago that, that should have essentially left her paralyzed and with migraines and, and tons of repercussions. And, and 10 years later, nothing the doctor said has happened. She's in great health. She, is, she received God's help and healing during that time. But she was telling me that even now, even today, as she thinks back on that accident, God is using it to just show more and more and more of, of himself to her. He's, he, he reached out to her at 12 years old through that accident and, and began to wake her up to spiritual realities during that time and even throughout the next few years used it and, 
and use a moment of crisis and a, and a, and a, and a problem and a need to, to work. That's how, God, that's how God often operates in our lives. He, he, will, he will bring something to, to awaken us up and to get us to Jesus. And we, and we need to be ready when people around us are in those moments to enter in and to tell them that there, there's someone who can help. Let's look at verses 48 through 50 and look at what Jesus' response is. So the man comes to Jesus, says, My son is dying. Please help me. Please come with me. Come, come back to Capernaum with me and heal my son. And in 50, 48 through 50, we see a discerning response. A discerning response. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's kind of a jarring response uh, when, when you consider that this man's son is at the point of death and he just traveled for several days to get to Jesus to come and, and Jesus doesn't even mention the son. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, I want to help. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And, and that word you, you might even have a footnote in your text, that word you here is plural. He's, he's speaking to the man, but all these Galileans are around him they all want to see a sign. They all want to see a miracle. They all want to see Jesus do something. They're ready for a show. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to call them out and to rebuke them and to expose that they value what Jesus can do for them more than they value Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying to the crowds, you value stuff. You value things. You value my powers. You don't value me. Unless, unless I do stuff for you, you're not going to believe in me, and that type of belief is no good to you. And at the same time, as he's rebuking these crowds, because he discerns where they are, he discerns what they want, at the same time, he's calling this man not to be like them. He, he's, he's calling this official to, to have faith. He's, he's saying, is this you too? Is this, is this really, are, are you just like them? Are, are you just looking for a sign to believe in me, he, he confronts the desperate father with the reality that he needs Jesus for more than just his son's healing. He's confronting him with, with the status of his faith before God, his salvation before God, and, and, and it seems jarring, but as we'll see, it's loving. What Jesus is doing is loving this man. So, so, so how does the father respond to this? Well, he really doesn't say anything. You know, it's like they're speaking past each other. Heal my son. Come with me, heal my son. Unless he's not signs and wonders, he won't believe. Sir, please come heal my son. <laughs> right? I don't care about that. I just don't care about whether I believe or don't believe or what you're. I'm not here for a spiritual conversation. I'm here because my son is dying and I've heard you can help him. Will you please come and heal my son? And Jesus gives him a gift and he says, Go, your son will live. Jesus responds and he says, Go, your son will Will live, And what Jesus does there is that he's confronted him with his need for faith, and then by refusing to come with him, and, and, and by not journeying back to Capernaum and, and physically healing his son, Jesus is requiring this man to believe in his word before he sees the work. He, he, he is drawing this man to have faith in what he says and not just in what he can do for him. And, and it says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke, and went on his way. He, he didn't ask any questions. He said, that's good enough for him. You, you say he's going to live? Okay, I believe it. 
Now, no, I don't think at this point that this man was saved. I don't, I don't think that his, his faith yet was in Christ. I think at this point he, he believed he could do something for him. And Jesus was being gracious to do something for him because Jesus had a deeper intention for his heart and his life. And we're going to see what that is here. And so let's look at the last section, a dramatic realization. So we've had a despised prophet, not a desperate father. We've had a discerning response. And here we have a dramatic realization. Verses 51 through 54. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So, so on his way back to his son, already believing that, that what Jesus said would happen, that a son would live, the man's servants meet him, and, and they tell him, sir, your son's begun to recover. He's getting better. It's okay. He's, he, he's good. And listen, this is what the man wanted. This is why he came, his son as well. But, but notice this is not the climax of the story. The climax of the story is not in, in them saying your son's better. That, that, that's not the miracle in the story. Look at what he says next. He says, he says when, when, when did this happen? Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And in 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You see, when he realizes that that his son began to get better the moment that Jesus said, your son will live. From 15 miles away, his son began to recover. He, he, is, he is confronted with the reality of Christ in a, in a whole different way. He didn't come wanting spiritual conversation. He didn't, he didn't come wanting to, to examine his own heart and, and, and see how it relates to Jesus. He, he just wanted his son to be better, but Jesus was not willing to just heal this man's son. Jesus confronted him with his power and with his compassion and with his supremacy. And John ends this, he gives us a picture of this man with his household. He says he himself believed and his household. You just picture this man, after this happens, he's home, he's sitting with his wife, he's sitting with his daughters, he's sitting with his servants, and he's sitting with his son who was almost dead and now is alive. And they all believe. They don't just believe that Jesus has power to heal. They, they believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They believe that this is the Christ. They believe this is the Savior of the world. They believe that he is worth following. They want Jesus, and they honor Jesus for who he is. Jesus came to a place where he was not going to receive honor because he was going to graciously, lovingly work so that this man and his family would honor him, would have faith that is real and true and genuine. Jesus sought this man out and he gave him faith. And he didn't, just get, he didn't just get his son back from physical death. His whole family got spiritual life through this. And so this was the second sign Jesus did. This is, this is how Jesus manifested his glory. What is the sign? Who is Jesus in this text? He's our help. Jesus is our help. And it's important to understand what we mean when we say that. Jesus is a helper in our need, and Jesus is the help we need. Okay, I'll say that. Jesus is a helper in our need. So you have problems, you have needs, Jesus is a helper to you. But not only that, Jesus is the help that we need. It's him. 
himself. He's a helper in our need. He's compassionate and he's powerful. He's able and he's willing. When he saw sick people, what did he do? He healed them. When he saw hungry people, what did Jesus do? He would feed them. When he saw a demon-possessed person, what did he do? He would free them. When he saw spiritually lost people, what did he do? He would teach them. You know, I was thinking, and I don't want to bank 100% of my savings on this or anything, because maybe maybe a story I'm not thinking of, but I don't think that there's an instance in the Gospels when someone comes to Jesus with a need, and he declines to meet that need. Whenever someone comes to Jesus and calls out to him in faith and says, help me, I've heard you can help me, please help me, Jesus always meets that need. He, he is a helper in our need. But let's not miss the point of this text. Jesus didn't come just to be a helper for, for our needs that we feel. Je- Jesus came to show us that he is the help we need. He, he himself is the help we need. He's the answer. Jesus is devoted to helping us in the area that we need help the most, which is to behold him and believe in him. That's where we need help the most, to see who he is and to believe in him. You don't have a job this morning. What you need is to see who Jesus is and believe in him. You have failing health. What you need is to see who Jesus is and believe in him. You have parenting struggles, marital conflict. You need to see who Jesus is this morning and believe in him. And Jesus is graciously helping us get there. You see, he's not, he's not willing to be used as a means to an end, to then be discarded with when things are better. Jesus is not someone that we just put on the shelf when we don't need him and then pull off when we do. Jesus is a loving helper who uses our difficulties themselves as the means. You see the difference there? We have difficulties, and we want Jesus to be the means to get these difficulties resolved. Jesus is saying, no, the difficulty is the means of my help. The trouble is the means of my help for you to behold and believe in me. I've ordained this for you. I've, I've, I've done this for you so that through this difficulty, you would come to me and you would find me and you would realize that, that all the help you need is in me. If, if he was just willing to be a means to a different end, that would be unloving of him because Jesus is our highest joy. Jesus is our greatest satisfaction. Jesus is life. And so if he just let us come to him and, and use him and then discard him, put him on the shelf, that would be very unloving of Jesus. He would just be essentially saying, yeah, go pursue your joy in other things. But no, Jesus says, I know you have needs. I know you have issues. I want to help you. But, but more than that, I want to help you realize that, that I'm everything that you need. It's all, it's all in me. If we have Jesus, we have all the help we need in him. And so... What do we do with that? How, how do we respond to this text? How do we honor Christ in response to this text? And, 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 and here's the one application, and then with a number of sub-applications. But here's the main thing. Seek Jesus' help in a way that honors Jesus' worth. Seek Jesus' help in a way that honors Jesus' worth. There are many, many people around us that seek Jesus' help a lot, but they dishonor his worth in the way they do that. Just like the Galileans did, 
They don't see him as, as valuable. They don't see him as worthy. They don't see him as a treasure. They just want him to make things better for them. But we, need, we at Redeemer Church need to be a people who, who honor Christ's worth in the way that we seek his help. And so how do we do that? Just real practically now, how do we do that? You're, you're, in a, you're in a difficult situation. Maybe think of what you were praying about at the beginning of this sermon. Think about what's going on in your lives. How do you seek Jesus' help in, in, in that in a way that honors his worth? First, search your heart. Search your heart. Difficulties and troubles and trials and crises are opportunities to get an x-ray of your heart. They're opportunities to see what's actually going on inside. When, when those things aren't going on, we don't really know. Our heart is deceitful. And we may say we believe in Jesus, but, but nothing's really testing that belief. But what, when something difficult is happening, then, then it's an opportunity for you to look inside and, and, and to get an x-ray of your own heart and, and to see here, here's... Here's what I say, but here's what is actually happening in me. And, and it's an opportunity to see what am I wanting, what am I treasuring, what am I worshiping, what am I valuing? Is it this thing? Is it this need? Is it this, am I good once I get this? Or right now, even though I'm in need, even though I need help, is my heart resting and rejoicing in who Christ is for me? And so the first thing you need to do is search your heart and, and let the work of the difficulty be done in you. God, God gives it to you for this reason. He gives the difficulties to you so that you would see where you really are before him. And so search your heart and ask, what am I wanting most? Am I wanting Jesus most? Or am I wanting something that Jesus can do for me? You know, genuine believers are never free from the temptation to idolatry. We're never free from it. We're going we're gonna to struggle with idolatry all our lives where, we, where our flesh wants to set up other gods and worship them and value them and treasure them. We're always going to struggle with it. But difficulties that God brings into our lives are, are, are his grace to us so that we see those struggles. And if you're a genuine believer, then when you see that idol, you break it down. <laughs> when you see that idol, you turn from it and you turn to God. And so, so if you see an idol in your heart this morning and confess that idol, Confess, God, this difficulty you brought into my life is showing me that, that I thought I wanted Jesus, but really I'm wanting this, and that's not valuing him. I want him. Turn from that idol. Confess your sin. Turn to Christ as the one your heart desires most. So search your heart. That's, that's one way to honor Christ's worth in the way you seek his help. But, but then, how do you honor Christ's worth in the way you seek his help? You, you ask for help. You ask for help. You know, I was thinking yesterday uh, that... You know, we, we've, got, we've got two cars that God has graciously provided to us through our family. And for months, I've just been uh, anxious about these cars because when I drive them, I feel like the wheels could fall off, <laughs> you know? And, and so we've talked about it, and we've just kind of, you know, been thinking about it. And I've just kind of had this, this kind of constant, low-level anxiety that, that is right there in your gut, you know, and... I realized yesterday, I've not asked God to help me in this at all. I, I, not one time have I said, God, help, please help me with my cars. Because I don't know what I'm going to do if they break. I've, I've, not, I've not even mentioned it to him. That, that doesn't honor him. That, that's a spirit of pride and a spirit of independence and a spirit of self-sufficiency that dishonors Christ because he's sufficient. He's, he's everything. He's, he's a helper to us. He wants us to come to him. It honors him to ask for his help. 
to not ask dishonors him, but he's powerful, he's compassionate, he's gracious, so ask. What's going on in your life? What needs do you have? Ask Jesus to help you. But don't stop with that request. Don't just ask for help with the specific circumstance, but ask for help to grow in your faith. Understand that Jesus is using this difficulty to demonstrate his glory to you and strengthen your belief in him. So ask him to do that. Say, God, I don't know why this is happening to me. And I, and I do need your help. I, I need you to help me in this situation because I don't, I don't know what's going to happen if you don't. But I also know that you've brought the situation into my life to show me my heart and, and to strengthen my faith. And so I want to ask you, that no matter what happens in this situation, that you would use it to help me behold Jesus and believe in Jesus more. Make that your prayer regarding your difficulty. Don't don't just look for what you want from Jesus. Ask God to help you want Jesus through it. And then finally, so search your heart, ask for help, and then believe the word of the gospel. Believe the word of the gospel. This, This is so important. Believe in the ultimate help that Jesus has already provided through his death on the cross. Like, Jesus has helped us in every way we could ever possibly have needed help through the cross. We were separated from God. We were condemned in our sin. We were headed for hell. And he's taken your sin. He's borne God's wrath. He's conquered death. He's filled you with the Spirit. And he will come again, and we will live in a glorified creation with glorified bodies, beholding his glory forever and ever. That's help. That, that is complete help. There's, there's, there's nothing outside of that that really matters. If we have that type of help, then, then, then we have all the help we need. And so we need to believe that. We need to remember that. We need to rehearse that gospel. We need to, we need to say, Jesus, you have helped me. You are my helper, and you helped me in the way I needed it most through the cross. Thank you. And then on that basis, on that basis, thinking about the cross, thinking of the help he provided, thinking of how he provided it, trust in the help he was going to provide now. Jesus does not say to all of us, your son will live. He doesn't say to all of us, your son will live. Sometimes he says, your son will not live. He doesn't say, you will get a great job. He doesn't say, you will have lots of money. He doesn't, he doesn't promise these things to us, these these aren't blessings that he gives us here and now every time. But Jesus died for us. Jesus bore our sin. Jesus bore God's wrath for our sin. Jesus conquered death. Jesus will bring us to heaven. So on that basis, trust that whatever help he chooses to bring, whatever, whatever answer he has to your request, it's a good answer. You can be assured on the basis of the cross that his help, whatever it is, is an expression of his devotion to you. And it's an expression of his devotion to give you what you really need. Whatever's happening, whatever answer Jesus is giving, that is Jesus' expression of goodness to you. And his expression of saying, this is what you need, trust me. And then if that's true, if Jesus has provided that type of help, and if, and if Jesus, on that basis, if we can trust him with whatever he brings in our lives, then then this is, what, this is the culmination of it, is that we need to extol Jesus as all the help we need. We, we, we need to praise him. We need to declare him. We need to publicly say to one another and to the world, Jesus is all the help I need. 
yeah, I've got this hard situation going on, but Jesus is all the help I need. You know, you hear a lot of people say when they're in trouble, God is good, you know, but God is good. And, and that's not not true, right? It's not not true at all. It's, 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 it's a good thing to say. But in our culture, that, that kind of seems like a, an easy way to just kind of get around the essence of God's goodness and not to really talk about it. What we should be saying is, yes, it's been hard. Yes, I need help. But God is good, and I know he's good because he gave his son for me. And my heart is so satisfied in Jesus that no matter what happens to me, I already have all I need in him. So, so that's why God is good. And that's why I'm okay, because I have Jesus, and in him is all the help I need. And so Jesus is a helper. Jesus wants to help you this morning. Jesus invites you to come to him and make your requests known to him, and he delights to answer those prayers. And often he answers those prayers, yes. And he gives us the help we need. But whatever he's doing, whether he's saying yes or no, what he's always doing is helping us get to the point where we say, Jesus, you are actually all we need. You are all we want. You are worth everything to us. No matter what's going on in my life, if I have you, I have enough. And so what we're going to do now, I'm going to ask the music team to come up, and we're going to take communion together. And as we do, I want to encourage you to meditate on the help Jesus provided on the cross. Meditate on what he's done for you in bearing your sin so that you could be forgiven, you could have his presence, you could have the hope of eternal life and of glory with him, you could have the assurance that he's always working for your good. Meditate on these things and most of all, meditate on, on, on the glory of Christ in the cross. The, the cross is the ultimate sign of who Jesus is. It, the cross shows us his glory like no other sign he ever would do. In the cross, we see a God who is holy and just and righteous and loving and gracious and compassionate and powerful and wise. And if we have this God, if we have Jesus, like, like we sang earlier this morning, you are God, you are God of all else I'm letting go. I'm running to your arms. Right now, let's do that as we take communion.